This is Teofimo Lopez, The Takeover, and you are now listening to Zoots Boxing Talk. All righty, welcome everybody to Zoots Boxing Talk, the boxing show where we bring you a sweet science straight up with no twist. And as everybody there doing this evening, Christmas night 2019, getting ready to say goodbye to another calendar year soon enough. But uh, first, there's a little boxing to discuss. Uh, scheduled for tonight's show, cruiserweight Kenneth Ray Allen and boxing historian Lee Groves to join us. Before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the boxing action of this past weekend as uh, PBC was front and center on Fox 5 Saturday night. And oh boy, did they have a fabulous main card with a lot of interesting situations and decisions by referees. Hopefully that does not overshadow the great action we saw, but it certainly did take a lot of attention that night. First, we had a little bit of a mild upset uh, with Rene Grion stopping the undefeated prospect Carlos Balderas in the sixth round. Uh, Balderas was also down in round three. Excuse me. And the interesting about that is when uh, the first time he went down was towards the end of the round. And the referee instructed the hurt fighter to come towards him. And instead of coming towards him, he wobbled back into the ropes, into the the turnbuckle, actually. And it it seemed like that was a, a reason to wave the fight off immediately. Referee did not do so. Uh, There was uh, very little time left in the round, so Balderas got to fight on, and he he did a pretty decent job of trying to come back, but then he got caught again, and then that was it. And there was a big debate between Brian Kenny and Goosen uh, about, and Lennox Lewis a little bit, uh, but there was more Kenny and Goosen that were doing the bickering, and it was a situation where Goosen was trying to give a point of view, such as, well, perhaps the referee knew that they were under 10 seconds left in the round, and he said, well, let me see what he does with his minute rest. Kenny wasn't buying it. Kenny was actually trying to interrupt Goosen before he could even finish his point, and Goosen was like, let me finish, and whether or not you agree with Goosen's point, he, he makes a, a, a clear argument for letting the fight continue. And obviously, he was able to continue for a couple of more rounds. And we got some good action out of it, some bonus action, so to speak. And it got me thinking if only uh, Richard Steele would have been aware of the time, what would have been, right? If, you, if you're thinking that way, well, there's only a couple of seconds left. Do I wave this fight off? Clearly, you, you can't. I mean, clearly, I mean, Meldrick Taylor, of course, that's what I'm talking about. Meldrick Taylor was definitely in more physical uh, dire straits than Balbaris was. But Meldrick Taylor was standing 
and semi nodded when Steele asked him if he was okay, and Steele waved it off, pretending as if he didn't know what time it was in the round. Here you had a guy who clearly had no legs who wobbled back, and if he did not wobble back in the third buckle, might have fell again. But indeed, the referee let it continue. Now, we never got clarification as to whether or not the referee did indeed let the action go because he knew the time was winding down and he wanted to see what the fighter would do with the minute rest. That was speculation by Goose. And as far as I know, that was never confirmed as the uh, reason, at least not until now, that I've seen. So... uh, Anyway, the B-side gets the mild upset, and it was a good way to start off the action. Then you had a couple of heavyweights, F.A. Ajagba and Iago Kildazi. Uh, they, going, they got on <laughs> pretty good, too, right? We had multiple knockdowns in that fight where it looked like uh, Kaldazi was going to go and say goodbye early. He fought back. He knocked uh, a Jogba down in round three, but uh, Kaldazi was just a little too tough for his own good, tried to hang in there, and uh, his corner throws in the towel after some good hard action. Now we had the main event, of course, the big rematch between Tony Harrison and Jermel Charlo. And uh, the first time around, it was considered an upset, Some people thought that Charlo was robbed. Most people thought that it was a close fight. And this time around, well, we're going to see a better fight. And we certainly did from uh, start to finish. It was a much better boxing match, I thought, than the first time around. Harrison was dropped in round two, but he got up and recovered nicely and made it a competitive fight. And then in round 11, the Jack Reese saga begins, right? (laughs) Good old Jack Reese. Uh, Charlo hurts uh, uh, Harrison with a left hook, knocks him all the way back into the ropes. Harrison goes down. Uh, Reese starts to count. And he axes uh, Harrison to walk in a certain direction and then walk back. Well, Harrison walked in the initial direction, but did not walk back to the direction that uh, Reese was instructing him. But Reese was like, all right, well, let's fight anyway. I was like, well, what's the point of the sobriety test if you're not going to follow through with it, right? If the guy doesn't go in the direction you ask, why still let him go? If that wasn't bad enough, the second time around, it was even worse. And this time, uh, Charlo was delivering some heavy blows on Harrison, and Reese jumped in. As as Harrison was going down, Reese kind of jumped in, and it appeared as if he was jumping in to save the fighter who was taking a lot of hard shots, not because he was intervening because of a knockdown. I mean, I, I could see exactly why Charlo thought the fight was over. But lo and behold, uh, Reese was counting, and Harrison got up as Charlo celebrating, thinking the the fight is over, right? The the, uh, people in the commission let Charlo know the fight's going on. Harrison gets up. Reese does the count. 
And again, he starts with the sobriety test, and this time he asked him to walk towards him, and he didn't walk towards him. And he still let them, he's like, all right, whatever, let's let them fight. I mean, twice in a row. I mean, first of all, ask the guy if he's okay. The, the first time, or was it the second time? I might have been getting this mixed up. Harrison really didn't even answer if he was okay. And he really didn't walk exactly the way Reese wanted him to. But Reese still let him fight. And not a word of this was said by Brian Kenny and the crew who was questioning every single piece of existence that entire night. And then when Reese finally stops the fight after two knockdowns, Charlo wasn't even landing. I mean, Harrison was doing a decent job of avoiding punches. He was definitely still hurt. But it wasn't a situation where he was getting tagged. All those punches that Charlo were throwing were not landing cleanly anymore. I thought it was an odd time to stop the fight. If you're not going to stop the fight, when a guy does not obey your sobriety directions, walk towards me. All right, don't walk towards me. Let's fight anyway. Why in the world do you stop it when a guy's not getting tagged? Those punches were missing at the time of the stoppage. And again, nothing is said by Kenny and the crew. Who's Jack Reese? Don Leone? Because not even Tony Harrison would question Jack Reese. And Tony Harrison was clearly upset uh, about the stoppage. The minute he stopped it, he yelled and he got very angry. Perhaps he should have been firing back to really wave off any uh, you know, doubt about whether or not he could continue. Perhaps the end was coming near. But after you let the guy get up, and he's obviously shaking, not following all directions. He's now obviously not fully okay, and you let him fight. You should have let it, you know, pan out a little bit more, I thought. Nevertheless, Charlo gets his belt back. Uh, it should be an interesting 2020. Will this be the year where we see a unified 154-pound champion, or at least a somewhat unified 154-pound champion in the world of the PBC. You have to keep in mind that they do not acknowledge the WBO anymore. So Patrick Teixeira, who is the WBO junior middle champion, is not in the equation when the PBC is talking about a unified champion. Uh, now you have Charlo with the WBC title, Julian Williams with the IBF, Julian Williams also uh, with the uh, WBA and Arizondi Laro and Miguel Miguel Soro also have the uh, versions of the super welterweight or junior middleweight, whatever you want to refer to it. It's a 154-pound championship. Let's make it easy. But I think everybody will acknowledge a, a showdown between Charlo and uh, J-Rack as at least a partial unification fight. And, and that's a fight 
uh, that could get done if everybody does their part up until then. I'm pretty sure J-Rock has a fight coming up, so we don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, uh, especially since there have been a lot of upsets and uh, fights we we might have thought we're close. We're not going to be close. That we're close, so we'll definitely see. But nevertheless, a, a great night of boxing by the PBC. And then you also got to see Errol Spence return with a public appearance for the first time since that horrific car accident. And he was talking like he is coming back. Last time we were on the air, we spoke with uh, Zach Familio. And he said he talked to two very reliable uh, sources, to uh, not to be named, but reliable nonetheless. And one was saying that he's nowhere near returning. He may never return. And the other was saying there's not much wrong with him. He should be back soon. Which, obviously, he says the same thing. Spence himself says he'll be back in May or June. We'll see. I mean, it would be great to see Spence is a great talent. Hopefully he gets, he's working towards getting other things straightened out, things that put him in the predicament in the first place. But uh, it'd be interesting to see, right? Because now everything is debate. Everything is a, a source of division. Even something like Spence's uh, car accident, is uh, subject to the uh, different islands as Zach was talking about, right? Bob Arum, who's top rank, of course, he got it from somebody that Spence's much more in dire straits physically than they are letting on, and he, his return is way down the pipe, if at all. I mean, coming from a guy who is from top rank, I mean, what do you think about that? I mean, Aram is a great promoter, but he's been a guy that's uh, been labeled as not too truthful. He's, I mean, admitted himself that he's lied in the past. So, I mean, what does he get out of saying that Spence is not ready anymore? I mean, being a, a guy who is looking to make a fight with his guy, Crawford, and that seems to be very tough, although Spence said that uh, he, he did name Crawford as opponent that uh, he would like to fight. Crawford was named by Spence, you know, and you all often see these things where you see, uh, well, nobody even wants to say Bud Crawford's name. Well, Spence did say Bud Crawford's name on that night. Doesn't mean the fight is any closer to happening, but I uh, are you still going to say Spence won't even acknowledge Bud Crawford? I mean, it makes no sense. Kind of like when all these conservatives used to kill uh, Barack Obama for never saying Merry Christmas. And you could find a million clips with Barack Obama indeed saying Merry Christmas. It just makes no sense. But uh, enough of that. I thought it was a really solid way to end 2000 and. 19 here on American uh, television with the boxing. We didn't. We don't really have much coming up this weekend on American television. I don't think. I'll look into that before we go off the air. Then you also on the same evening you also had uh, Daniel Dubois, the good-looking uh, heavyweight uh, out of top rank, fighting on ESPN Plus, and he made 
uh, quick work of Kayataro uh, Fumijito Fujimoto Fujimoto. Uh, he stopped him in uh, two rounds, and uh, we want to see Dubois step up and fight some rougher uh, competition, so to speak. Then, of course, on the zone, you had the Daniel Jacobs and uh, Julio Cesar Chavez Jr. match. And uh, even when Chavez Jr. shows up and gives a good account of himself, he, he does something to make people remind us why some people who are upset this fight even happened from the beginning, right? Because, uh, you know, the, the story goes that he uh, quit. Uh, and, uh, you know, people are saying it was the broken nose, and he said it was a broken hand. There definitely was blood coming out of the nose. There definitely was some dirty tactics inflicted on Jacobs. There definitely was an elbow in there. There definitely were headbutts. Uh, Chavez definitely could not continue and it was definitely not well received right but up until that point I I thought it was a pretty good scrap I thought Chavez was taking punches well I thought he was getting home with some good punches on Jacobs I mean if we forget that we were so angry that Chavez Jr. got this fight in the first place those first five rounds was an entertaining fight if you if you didn't see that, you were blinded. I mean, those are facts. Those first five rounds were entertaining. It was not, and they were not one-sided. Even though Jacobs might have been edging out all the rounds, it was certainly a, a situation where Junior was competitive until he stopped fighting, which makes it even more frustrating. But, I mean, you know... Thank God for those big giant ring cards, right? Because uh, the the fans were pelting everybody, and you saw some of the people were protecting themselves with the round cards uh, as debris was flying all over the place. And, you know, as I said and as I wrote about for Ringside Report, Chavez Jr. is a big attraction, and make no mistake about it, a lot of those fans were there for him. That place was loud. That place was full. Chavez Jr. is a ticket seller. No doubt about it. I don't know if he's going to be able to overcome this. He might have to have another fight in sort of oblivion like he did before this one, before getting back to Jacobs. Because let's admit it, as boxing fans, we certainly have a short memory. And if the kid is still going to be uh, a good business decision for a promoter they're going to look for any reason to get him back but I think this time it might be a little bit longer if at all I mean the, the great I said the gravy train for Chavez is going to run out eventually the act is going to wear thin eventually perhaps this is it but if you watch those first four or five rounds of action you could see that uh, Chavez Jr. put up uh, one of his better efforts up until the point that he quit. I mean, it's just reality, folks. 
All righty, so we're going to play our first interview coming up right now. He is an undefeated cruiserweight uh, prospect. Uh, he has a great story. Without further ado, here he is, Kenneth Ray Allen. The professional fighter out of the cruiserweight division. He sports a record of 5-0, four of his big wins by knockout from Houston, Texas. We have Mr. Kenneth Ray Allen. Welcome to the show, sir. Yes, how you doing? Yes. How, you how, you doing? doing? how you doing? I'm doing excellent today. Can't complain. I'm uh, talking boxing and uh, everything is all good. <laughs> so how, how's it going how's, for you? Oh, it's going great. It's going great out here in Houston. Great. I hear Christmas time. Yes, yes, yes. Now, uh, before we start talking about what's next for you, let's go back to the origin uh, of Kenneth Ray Allen. When was it that boxing was on your radar, first as a fan, and then when did you decide, well, this is something that uh, I want to pursue. I want to lace up the boxing gloves and give it a try myself. So take us back to that point first. Yes. I mean, um, I started watching boxing around in the eighth eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade. Um, I became a big fan of it when I was younger. Um, but I was also playing basketball, so um, I just kept playing basketball. And when I got a little older, around 19 or 20, then I started lacing up the boxing gloves. So I started a little late. Now, you're a young guy, so 7th and 8th grade is circa what time? Um, Around um, 13 or 14. I say what year? What year uh, was that? Two. 2000 and, 2000 and, I would say. Well, let's four, put it this way. I what, what, what were the fights that you were seeing? Because uh, it's very, I, I find this always fascinating because I was introduced to boxing when Muhammad Ali was still fighting. So I want to hear uh, who, who was that you were watching when you were first introduced to the sport? Oh, of course, Floyd Money Mayweather. Of course, Mayweather, um, Roy Jones Jr. Um, was out. His, um, he was on his way out. Uh, yeah, but my eye was on on Floyd, Floyd Mayweather for the most part, like every other fighter. Indeed, indeed, yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. Now, uh, talk a little bit about your pursuit uh, from the research I've I've gathered about you. Yeah, you came from a, a tough neighborhood, a tough upbringing, uh, a penchant for violence, so to speak. Trouble was there, but you parlayed it into boxing. Talk a little bit about how that happened. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, growing up, um, five brothers, one sister, a single mom. You know, growing up poor, uh, we didn't have much, so, you know. We turned into, you know, stealing, um, stealing cars, you know, doing anything to survive um, in the upbringing. But for the most part, you know, my mom was a great mom. It was just she had nothing but boys, and we came, we we um, grew up in a project, so it was a little hard. It was a little harder for us to like um, to survive, you know, because we didn't have nothing. Right, right, right. 
So when did you realize that you could do this boxing thing? It's one thing to have people suggest that it's one thing to try and use your aggressive energy in a positive way. There are a lot of kids who go to the gym for that, but very few of them turn pro. So talk a little bit about how you manifested into a professional fighter. Oh, man, it's um, all mental. It's all mental. Um, I remember... um, you know, like I said, I have five brothers, so all we did was fight in real life. So if one of us disrespect each other or disrespect our mother, we would fight each other. So um, when I started going to the gym, I knew once I started going to the gym, um, they put me right in there with the, with the killers, with the dogs, sparring, you know, getting beat up and getting bruised in the beginning. And then I was like, hold on, I'm tired of getting bruised and beat up, so let me let me get better, let me get stronger, let me get crazy like they like they are, and then that's how I became, you know, um, the, the aggressor instead of, like, the victim, you know, in the sport, and I just took it serious, you know, because everything is mental in this sport. It's not, it's, it, it, don't, it don't matter how big you are, how, how strong you think you is. Everything is mental. Uh, let's talk a little bit about – let's talk a little bit about your skill set for a moment or two for those fans who are listening that might not have seen you fight. Give a little synopsis of yourself. I've seen you fight a little bit, but I want to hear from you first. How would you describe yourself, the pluses, the things you really think you need to work on? Kenneth Ray Allen as a fighter at this point in time. Give us a little description. Um, Yes, I'm um, orthodox. Um. I would say I don't like to brag, but I would say uh, I I hit just as hard as just as hard as um, any heavyweight, and I'm cruiserweight. Um, I can throw combinations. Um, I love a one-two. I can knock you out with the left hand or right hand, and I can knock you down with with, with a left jab. You know, it depends on um, you know styles make fights, so it, it depends um, what I'm fighting. But I um, of course, you can always get better. Um, I would, I would like to say, um, I would like to throw more combinations, you know. But it's, it's pretty hard. It's pretty hard um, throwing combinations as big guys. I mean, Mike Tyson was the last big guy that threw multiple combinations. You know, the one, two, three is easy, but the four, five, and six, and seven, is, it's kind of harder for the big guys. Now, in the the clips that I've seen you in, what what I really like about you, other than the heavy hands, of course, is is the fact that you are very diverse. When you you throw a lead punch, it's not always a jab. You like to throw the right uh, in in various ways. You like to throw a left hook, uh, but you do have a very good one-two also when you when you focus. On that was that, uh, and and that was I think in your first pro fight that I saw you be that diverse. Was that taught to you, or did that come natural? That that approach of leading with different punches. Um, I would like to say um I had good I have I have great trainers around me um, but you know I think the lead um, punches come naturally because if my my trainer would tell me um uh, don't don't lead don't lead with your punches. That's how you would get hit. So I think the the, the lead leap punches come naturally, just as a, a over a overall athlete. 
And the power, of course, the heavy hands are, are definitely evident. Uh, you throw thudding punches. Were those heavy hands always there? Did you do anything to develop more punching power? Or are you like a George Foreman? I mean, even if you never became a boxer, you probably would have really heavy hands that would hurt you. Of course, yes. Uh, yeah, more like probably a George Foreman. Um, yeah, I just I, I always had heavy hands. I mean, of course. You can always get um, stronger doing and using certain methods like hitting the concrete um, or hitting the, the heavy bag with the one with the rocks in it. But no, nah, I mean that's just um, people like George Foreman, Mike Tyson, just God-given people. I mean, just God-given um, power. You can't be taught that. Can't teach that. That's just that's just from God. Now, talk a little bit about, you mentioned uh, your your trainer, the people that you're working with. Talk a little bit about who they are. Let's give them a, a little shine right now. Who is it that works in your corner, and what do they mean to you? Oh, of course. Um, I actually started off with, um, I started off with Jay, Jay John, um, before he became a manager. Um, he started me off. He, he taught me, like, most of my fundamentals. And um and then I had when he came, became a manager, um, Aaron, um my coach named Aaron, um, he got in my corner and um he taught me a lot. You know, he um he, he taught me um discipline, he taught me uh relaxation and you know, and not and not and, and don't be afraid to be great. And then also we have another coach named Dwight. Um, Dwight. He's a great skill skill coach. We just brought him in um like a year ago. He's a skill coach, so he's a he's a great coach. We have a great team over here in Houston, um, main boxing gym. Yeah, the main boxing gym in Houston, a hotbed of talent. Talk a little bit about what it's like uh training there. Who is some of the other uh fighters that yet you've seen training there. There's always great stories to hear that kind of stuff. Yes, we have yes, we have um great, great fighters, world champions. We have um Regis Progress. Um he was a three time world champion. Um we got a, another kid named um Austin Williams. He's a great fighter right now. He's he's four and He signed with um Eddie Hearn. Um we have another great fighter, he's seventeen and zero. Um Darren, Darren Price. We got some great, great fighters. It's, this is the beast gym over here in Houston, the main boxing gym. It's really great talent over here. And uh, talk a little bit about some. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the people you have sparred with uh, during your uh, short career so far. Um, we sparred. Um, I pretty much sparred with all the heavyweights, even on cruiserweight, because the light heavyweights are too um, small. I small. I, I sparred with um, heavyweight T Diddy. Um, he's a heavyweight. He didn't. He didn't fall. Dominique Brazil, he didn't fought Andy Louise, he didn't fought any um any um heavyweight contender you could you could think of. Um I didn't sport um Dominique, he didn't fought all the all the great heavyweight um contenders. Um and yeah, I mean them them are the two main heavyweight guys. All righty. Now, you, you turned pro in 2015, but you have five fights. 
not not a lot of fights. It's important for a young fighter to develop, to be active, to, to be matched against fighters that are going to bring them to the next level. 2018, you didn't fight at all. Talk a little bit about why you haven't, you don't have more fights on your record right now. Oh, so um, allegedly, um, um, I had got got in trouble. I think in 2017, I had um, got caught a, a case, um, aggravated robbery, um, and I just and I just end up beating it not too long ago. Um, so from 2017 up until like six months ago, I was on stuck. Like I couldn't go nowhere. Basically, I couldn't fight until the case was over with. Uh, yeah, for aggravated robbery, and I actually uh, just beat it. And now, uh, you know, we back on the move for 2020. Talk a little bit about what that's like. I mean, here you are, young, promising athlete, has a lot of good ingredients to become a star boxer. You get caught up in a case, and from what I know about uh, the legal system, they don't take care of things overnight. They draw things out. They milk that cow with the lawyers and all of that stuff as long as possible. How did you stay focused during that period? Well, what was it like? Oh, man, yeah. Because, you know, I ended up going to jail because um, I made bail, and then I went back for, like, a violation of curfew. And I end up doing like nine or ten months. I mean, to be honest, you got to find. See, and this is what when boxing come in because, like I said earlier, you know, boxing you're trying to teach you how to, um, you know, everything is mental, how to stay relaxed, how to stay calm, in the worst situations. And um, I, I think it helped me a lot. You know, I, I kept my sanity, I kept guard first, um, um, and I just stay, I just, I just stay. Um, focus on the good and, and not the negative, because that's the hardest thing a person can go to is being in jail. Especially, um, you know, if you're not familiar um, with that type of environment, because it's crazy. Now. I mean, I didn't see people try to kill themselves. I didn't see people try to kill other people in there. And every day, you know, the guards treat you like trash. Right. You know, you eat tw- twice a day. I mean, you don't really eat. You know, you're missing your family. So it's it's really tough. Now, I mean, you described a lot of what nobody else wants to experience. When you were in jail, did, did people try to mess with you? Did they know that you were a professional fighter? That usually brings out a lot of macho guys. Oh, I want to challenge this guy. He's a boxer. Did, did anything like that happen to you? Um, I, I, I believe on one occasion. Um, of course, the guys will try you. Um, it, 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 it's just it's all up on you on how you carry yourself. I'm not a tough guy. I don't pretend to be tough. Um, but I mean, you could tell from certain guys who not to play with, and you know, or who not to approach. And I, I, I think they pretty much, even the big guys, the super big guys, the killers, I think they, they got a pretty good idea um, just from my demeanor, you know. I'm not a bully. I'm not none of that. But you can tell, you know, okay, no, nah, we're not going to mess with that guy. But I had a guy pull a shank out on me. Wow. And, you know, and I, and I was, 
Yeah, and I told him, I said, I don't care about the shank. I would take that shank and, you know, because he pulled the shank out because he, he was like the bully. He did 40 uh-huh. years. He came back, and he's still like an old-school bully guy, you know. And sometimes you got to you gotta defend yourself. And, but nothing happened. He pulled a shank out, and I, was, and I still stayed right there, and I was like, so what you want to do? And, but, I mean, nothing happened. I'm glad nothing happened. I'm glad nobody got hurt. But, yeah, they'll they try again. Huh? They, they will try again. So you said you beat the case. Everything is clear with that. No more uh, to that. That's in the rear view mirror? Yes. Yes. All right. Excellent. Now let's talk a little bit about 2019. You did have uh, one fight that you were successful in. Uh, from my research, I saw that you had a couple of other dates that were scheduled most recently, November, and it didn't unfold. What was the story with that? Guys just ran away from you? Yeah, I didn't have, yeah, I didn't have, um, nobody want to fight me in Houston. I didn't have, like, probably, like, five or six fights that that backed out that probably just didn't want to take the chance. And, um, yeah, just just backing out. So now the calendar year hits 2020. Any fights scheduled uh, in January or February? Oh, I I believe for sure 100% in February, and I can't wait. I think um, 20. Well, I know for sure 2020 is supposed to be a fast pace. It's supposed to be a great year. So um, my manager um, Jay Jones, he t- he told me um, 2020 is supposed to be a great year. Five, six, seven fights. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm in the gym every day, three times a day. So I'm just over-motivated. I'm over-focused. And I just, I can't wait. Indeed, indeed. It has to be rough. You're you're itching to get in there. All the hard work you want to result into some uh, real fights. So we look forward to seeing that in February. Uh, Training is obviously essential. What parts of training do you look forward to the most? Are there any parts of, of training that uh, are a little bit more of the grind where you, you have to really convince yourself to do it because you're not really fond of it? Yes. Um, I would say, I mean, people say the farm. Um, not so much for me. Um, I would say um, the over the overworking yourself. Um, I do a lot of heels. Upperly heels, stairs, a lot of sprints, and you know, and I and I run a lot. Um, keeping myself in a top shape condition at all times. Um, so when it's time to spar, or when it's time to spar these big guys, you know, because I mean, my power is there. Everything is there. It's just about being in top shape. If you're in top shape, you don't care about sparring and getting bruised up because you're in great shape. It, it doesn't matter. Only when you're not in shape, you, you hate getting up. And you're like, oh, I got to spar again because you're going to get tired by the third, fourth round. But if you're in shape, you, you, don't have, you don't have no problem with sparring. So, yeah, mostly the heels because I switched my training from just regular sprints and just been in the gym for three hours. Now I'm doing a lot of, like, swimming, heels, um, stairs, um, training, that type of training now. 
Now you just revealed your game plan is to be very active, to really get developed in 2020. So the, the training will be there. With that being said, uh, what is your ideal weight to come in at uh, in the cruiserweight division? You've been at uh, uh, various different weights. A little bit over 205 is your highest weight. A little under 190 has been your lowest weight of record. What is there a weight that you feel most comfortable with that you would like to keep consistent when you are fighting more often? Yeah, right, right at 195, 195, 196. Strong, tremendous shape, 195, 196. Now, the cruiserweight division has, is obviously a, a young division compared to all the others. I've had Marvin Camel on this show. He is on record as the first ever cruiserweight champion, obviously Evander Holyfield is who made this division famous. Then you have the O'Neill Bells and the John Mark Moore Max. And more recently, this has been a really good division in terms of people fighting each other. Great talent. Usyk has moved up now to heavyweight, but there's still a lot of great talent in the cruiserweight division. Uh I mean, when do you think you would be ready for that top championship competition? How many, I don't even want to say years, how many fights under your belt do you think it would take for you to challenge for a world title or at least a top five contender? Um, for sure, top five contender. I would say I would say top five contender, a world title up 2020. I believe so. Um because, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm training and I'm sparring with the top heavyweights right now. And, and it's, it's, it's looking pretty, pretty good. Um, I just, I really, really feel like, and I, I don't like to see like I'm brave. It's not, I really feel like no heavyweight hits, hits harder than me. I mean, no cruiserweight hits harder than me. So, um, and I'm going to forever be in great shape. So, um yeah, I mean, 2020, I want it all. Like, I, I want, and I really mean it from the bottom of my heart. I, I want, I want to win a belt, um, and I want to take on any any top ten, any top five. I'm willing to take them on, and I, I would, de- I would get them out of there. I don't think it's nobody working hard like me. I don't think um, nobody want it more than me, um, and I don't, I don't think nobody's is patient like me. Um, because I'm, I'm a student of the game as well, so I'm paying attention, I'm watching, I'm researching, I'm looking patiently. So 2020, I mean, I, I was talking to my manager. I told him 2020, and he put me in a tournament. I want I want the belts. You know, I've been on three years, almost three years high Hades, you know, fighting a case. So, But I've been getting better doing that three years. All righty. This is your first time on Zoot's Boxing Talk uh, I try and ask this question of all of the first-time uh, fighters. Uh, if you, if there was such a thing as a time machine, uh, we'll play a little fantasy fights for a second. Who would you want to go back in time and, and challenge your skills against? Uh, could be a cruiserweight. It could be a heavyweight since you're very well close to that weight as well. And moving forward, who would you, who would be your ideal dream fight against somebody that's uh, competing today. So two fights, one from the past, 
one from the present, who would you want to match yourself up against if you had that fantasy? Uh, of course, I would want to fight my idol. I would want to fight Ali, Muhammad Ali, <laughs> the GOAT, um, the greatest of all time. Of course, I would want to fight Muhammad Ali um, from the past. And up to date, um, I'm very competitive. Um, I would definitely want to fight Deontay Wilder. I would definitely want to fight him, man. Like, that guy is amazing. And I love that guy. But I would definitely want to fight him of this day and age. All righty. Now, does that mean in a year or two will you be, is it realistic to think of you as a heavyweight beyond 2020? Of course. Mm-hmm. Of course. I told Once I win a belt or two belts, if I can get it this year, I will go up. I will fight any any of them guys. I will fight any any of them guys, top top guys, no hesitation. All righty, now you're a guy that is uh, 32. You're listed as 32, but you're a young 32. You obviously haven't had a long career, so we have to worry about wear and tear just yet. So you're in a unique position where you're still a prospect, but you have age and wisdom on your side as well. What advice can you give guys who are much younger than you that are just starting out in boxing? Of course. Um, Stay focused and work extremely hard. That will take you wherever you want to go, most definitely. All righty. Thank you, Kenneth Ray Allen. It has been a blast. We hope to see you in the ring in February. Thank you for coming on. Uh, and Enjoy your, your Christmas and your New Year and all of that. Now it's time for some closing remarks. Any shout-outs you want to give? Any uh, social media that you want to plug? We appreciate your time. Closing remarks is now. Yes. Yeah. Um, Instagram on Allen D. Um, yeah, I mean that's about it. Um, you know, shout out to the um, the belt 2020. Um, I'm coming, and you know, remember the name and, and thank you for having me. Oh, pleasure's been all, all ours. You thank uh, thank you. Uh, I should say, and uh, you have a great rest of your evening. You too. Thank you so much. Hello, this is Marvin Camel, the the first cruiserweight champion of the world, the WBC, and I, it's been a pleasure talking with you at the Zoot uh, Boxing Channel. And I tell you, I'll be here, and I appreciate your listening to me, Marvin Camel, two-time cruiserweight champion of the world. Thank you. All righty, we are back, and there you have it, Kenneth Ray Allen and Marvin uh, Campbell. The Cruiserweights are alive. And what I really like about the Cruiserweight division uh, is that, you know, you usually get what you want. There's not really a lot of history of guys not wanting to fight each other. Usually the best of the Cruiserweights, lock horns, and usually they produce some really outstanding fights. We've seen it all the way up to with uh, the WBSS with the USAC and Gassiev and all of those guys, obviously Holyfield, 
obviously O'Neill Bell and the like. Now Kenneth Ray Allen is trying to move towards that status in uh, 2020. Will his heavy hands be enough? Will he be able to develop enough to compete at the top level with some really good top guys? It'll be fun to watch it uh, unfold. And we also watched something else unfold. I forgot to mention that uh, also you had a little bit of a Japanese matinee, so to speak, with the WBA middleweight champion, Ryota Murata, stopping uh, Stephen Butler in the fifth round. It it was a pretty uh, decent fight uh, going up until the stoppage. And when you have that kind of uh, explosion from a champion, that that really is putting the icing on the cake, right? Because we always hear about when a champion becomes a champion, what does he do as a champion, right? Am I going to start making uh, music? I I doubt it. But, I mean, defending the titles is something that's kind of been lost by the boards anyway in today's boxing. It's all about the super fights or who's not fighting each other, right? And if a guy gets a title shot, if it's not mega versus mega, people crap on it right away. Well, here was a situation of Murata, a good middleweight champion, defending his title in a good way. And I was, I, I misspoke. Did I say there was no action coming up this weekend? Oh, boy, was I wrong. Uh, Showtime has a card on uh, December the 28th, which is great for us, right? Uh, I, I knew Tank Davis and you know, Gamboa, which is the main event, was coming up soon. I don't know why it escaped me that it was uh, – uh, this weekend. Now, um, with that said, I don't expect much from this fight. I think Tank will destroy Gamboa, but there's also the outside possibility of Gamboa having Onito, a Nonito Donaire moment. I wouldn't expect it. I kind of doubt it, but I've been wrong so many times. Who are you going to listen to? It's certainly in the cards as a slim possibility, but. The reality in me tells me that the tank is going to be done by the third round. Now, you also have the WBA light heavyweight title up for grabs on that evening. The last, that is probably the official last card before the new year, but I I could be wrong about that as well. But we'll stick to that for now, right? So, John Pascal takes on. Badu Jack, and I think this has this really good chance of being uh, a fight that's interesting to watch. I, I don't know who I would like in this one. I, I think I would favor Jack, but uh, Pascal's a guy that every time I think he he's done, he, he's he's around and he's competitive, so we'll definitely see. Somebody who's always around and uh, is always competitive is... Uh, Mr. Lee Groves, and Lee will join us next to discuss the new Hall of Fame class set for 2020, as well as the untimely passing of a a great champion, Saul Mambi. So that's up next for you. Remember to go to ringsidereport.com for all your boxing and entertainment fixes. Follow me on Twitter at Zoots Boxing Talk. Like my Zoots Boxing Talk page on Facebook as well.
Well, here we go with Lee Groves. All righty, my next guest is a boxing historian who also writes for ringtv.com. This is a punch counter for Copy Box and is also the author of the best-selling Muhammad Ali by the Numbers along with Bob Canobio. And it's that time of year again to discuss the 2020 International Boxing Hall of Fame class and who better to discuss it with than uh, Voter himself, one of the most respected men in the business. Welcome back to the show, Mr. Lee Groves. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Oh, pleasure is all ours, of course. Now, uh, we're going to talk about, obviously, the new class of the International Boxing Hall of Fame. It's a tradition every year. Uh, but this year, there were major rule changes. So before we get into who actually mm -hmm. got in, talk a little bit about the rule changes for a few. Okay. Uh, which one do you want to do first? Well, the idea of the 80% and the uh, five-year to three-year window is kind of like hand-in-hand, hand, so let's start there. Okay, well, um, you know, the um, the Hall of Fame reduced its uh, mandatory waiting period for eligibility from uh, five years to three years. Uh, I believe the thinking behind that was uh, – Number one, a lot of the other Hall of Fames have uh, have reduced their waiting periods to something similar. I think the NBA, uh, the NBA is one. I think Major League Baseball perhaps was another. Uh, and also the fact that um, you know the um, uh, it, you know with the advent of modern technology, the internet, um, you know YouTube. Um, you know, it, it is uh, it is much easier uh, for for voters and researchers to gauge uh, to gauge a fighter's uh, worth. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's pretty easy to research, and also uh, there have been fighters who have um, who have fought on you know far longer than uh, than than perhaps they should have. And, uh, you know, suppose a fighter uh, retires at 50-something uh, at years old, uh, which, which has happened, and uh, then he waits five full years after his retirement to, uh, to then uh, become eligible. He'll be 58. And uh, so, you know, by reducing the waiting period from five years to three years, that 52-year-old fighter would be 56. And uh, it, it may also be a, a deterrent for fighters to launch uh, to launch comebacks. I mean, that's a that's a possibility. But uh, but I think it's more to get in line with the uh, with the other halls of fame as far as the uh, waiting period is concerned. Uh, as far as the 80 percent uh, rule is concerned, it, it's a mechanism that would allow for. Uh, you know the maximum number of fighters who are eligible, uh, you know, in the first year, perhaps to uh, to get in. Like, um, you know, for next year, perhaps uh, the class of 2021, we have a number of uh, of 
you know, top flight fighters who are going to be retiring and becoming eligible for the first time, such as uh, Floyd Mayweather, if he remains in, retired. We have Vladimir Klitschko. We have Miguel Cotto. We have Andre Ward. Um, you know, this would be a way for uh, for possibly all four to get in on the uh, uh, in the same class because. You know, it's it's fairly likely that that all four of them will uh, will will be named on a, a preponderance of ballots, and uh, you know that that's just another way to go beyond the maximum three that we usually see every year. So uh, really, I think the rule was put in so that you can maximize the number of fighters who could get in in a given year. So uh, I, I think that was the thinking behind it, and I, I certainly see uh, the logic behind it. Now, does the same rule still apply for the number of check marks a vote against five check marks? Yeah, we do. Uh, it's a maximum of five check marks uh, in most categories. I think, uh, yeah, I think it's it's five marks for for all the categories, as far as I know. So with this, it really, I understand why they do it, uh, but it really hurts the Chris Johns and the Mikulszewskis of the world. I mean, take this year, yeah. for example. You had your, your, your three no-brainers, mm-hmm. and then you have two check marks yeah. left. Uh, a lot of pretty good names, a lot of pretty good names for the first time this year. Very hard for anybody to accumulate yeah. 80% with only two check marks to spare. And next year, it's going to be even worse. So, I mean, I yeah. I see why they're protecting the bigger names, but how much protection do they need? Where's the little guy's protection? Or the lesser-known fighter? Well, you know, that, that that's the excruciating part of, of this process. With so many new names coming in, uh, and, and that's a result of one of the other reforms that uh, that took place, and that was the removal of uh, of, of uh, names that had been on the ballot for ten or more uh, voting cycles. Uh, what what they did there was, if you're if you're a name on the ballot that has been on there for ten or more years, and you didn't get voted in, you would be temporarily removed for a year. Uh, with the thought that uh, you would become eligible to be reinserted onto the ballot the following year, uh, the screening committee members would then, you know, discuss or decide whether those names that have been put off would be put back on, and if they're put back on, they would be uh, eligible for five more voting cycles, and if they don't get in. After those five voting cycles, they would then be removed for one year, and then should they be put back on again, which is you know unlikely but theoretically possible, then it would be five more years, then one year off, five more years, and one year, one year off, however many times. The theory is is that, yes, you're removed from the ballot, but you are not banished the way that they kind of do it in Major League Baseball. If you don't get 2% of the vote or something, you're off and off forever. Um, but, um, you know, but the, 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 uh, the fact that you have only five check marks, you know, to me, I'd rather have 10, but, uh, you know, uh, the hall of fame 
limits it to five because they wanted to make it difficult uh, to get into the Hall of Fame. Uh, one of the big criticisms of the Hall of Fame was that there were, you know, a lot of marginal names that were getting in, and this is a step toward uh, toward uh, eliminating or limiting that. Uh, so, so that with the new names and it, all of these things, uh, you know, had had that in mind to make the best possible class. Yeah, I mean, uh, part of me thinks this is a big push towards having bigger names on the weekend uh, because a lot of the alumni, other than marvelous Marvin Hagler, a lot of the real big, big name alumni don't come back that often. Right. I mean, last year was the 30th year anniversary and a lot of big names that a lot of fans were expecting uh, were not back. It was a great weekend. Everybody that was there was great. But the real big blue mm -hmm. chip performance, the Leonard's, the Chavez, the Lennox Lewis's, I mean, they're nowhere to be found. They very rarely come. And I think a lot of now with this rule, right, we got three big names coming this year. Uh, next year, you already described yeah. what could possibly be. I mean, uh, the first year I went to the Hall of Fame is when De La Hoya and uh, Trinidad got in along with Joe Calzaghe, and it was Bedlam. Yeah, 14. Like, yeah, it hasn't been like that from what I've seen since then. I mean, it's been very good. I thought last year was one of the best years because everybody there was very friendly. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of that was pushed towards that. I mean, I don't know if you would even know that, but th that's what a lot of people on the outside are thinking, Lee. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just a um, – I, I, I do think that uh, that with the – you know the big names coming in. We're, we're going to probably see some pretty big names come in. Uh, certainly this this you know in 2020, 2021, uh, 2022. Uh, you have Roy Jones uh, if he remains retired, uh, possibly come or you know getting in in the class of 2022. Um, and uh, and there, you know there were a whole bunch of new names in the in the observers and the non participants and. Uh, uh, as well, and uh, you know, there you, you talk about uh, uh, two categories that uh, that are wide open as far as big names are concerned. I, I think with all the new names that came into those categories, we're going to have strong classes um, name-wise for a lot of years to come. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is great news for everybody who likes to go for these, uh, you know, for people who don't like seeing, like you said, marginal guys get in. I can't see that happening mm -hmm. for for the next few years anyway. So it's good news on that. Oh, front. for sure. Yeah. I just feel bad for a guy like uh, Chris John and Mikulszewski, who years past you've been yeah. – uh, uh, saying deserved it and, and, and that you voted for. So, uh, oh, absolutely. I guess it's the fact of life. You take the good and you take the bad, right? I'm not going to sing the terrible theme song, but you know what I mean. <laughs> <coughs> well, you you know, I yeah, you do have a strong point when it comes to um, to some of the names that uh, that were kind of blocked out by this. Like for instance, 
uh, if the if the rules change hadn't taken place, it was very likely that um, you know besides Juan Manuel Marquez, who would have gotten in under the old protocol since he retired in 14, uh, the other two strong candidates from that 2014 retirement class was Carl Frotch and Sergio Martinez. Um, you know they were pretty much seen as. Uh, close to shoe-ins as far as uh, first-time nominees. But then when you added in the classes of 2015 and 16, and when you have, uh, and when you have guys like uh, Bernard Hopkins and Shane Mosley from the 16 class, uh, Timothy Bradley also was put on the ballot for the first time. He was a 16 retiree. Then that, uh, that really thickens the, uh, the race. And it really hurt, and because there are only, you know, um, there are only five check marks that a voter can bestow, that really gummed things up. Uh, as right. far as my vote was concerned, in the moderns, I, I voted for Mikulshevsky and Ivan Calderon uh, to fill out uh, the other two slots, and I had to leave out uh, guys like Gilberto Roman and uh, and several other guys for whom I uh, I advocated. Right. But uh, that that's just a byproduct of the process, and, uh, you know, you take the good with the bad, and, you know, as far as the results are concerned, the names that are getting in, you know, you, you've got a very solid class up and down the line. Uh, there, there really isn't a wrong answer, and uh, I, I think that if that was the objective of the Hall of Fame, and I think it was, then uh, they, they uh, achieved their end. Now, I, I don't really pay attention to the other sports when it comes to Halls of Fame. Baseball is the only one I pay mild attention to, and I just basically watch the Hall of Fame weekend. I don't like, read into it or know the process all that well. But the one thing I do know about mm-hmm. baseball is that they reveal the percentages the voter uh, gets, each voter gets. As far as I know, the Boxing Hall of mm-hmm. Fame doesn't, doesn't do that how many check marks or how many votes other fighters got is that accurate that they keep that right part of it unrevealed uh yes and uh i i think the thinking behind that is is that uh ed brophy is a, is an egalitarian he is a guy who wants every hall of famer uh who is put into the hall of fame to feel uh to feel like they're equally special and uh, and by revealing the vote totals, uh, he feels that uh, some of the Hall of Famers would feel less than other ones that got bigger vote margins. And so he wanted to uh, – that's, that's the one thing that he trades off as far as, um, as you know, revealing the vote totals to, uh, in, uh, in exchange for – having all the Hall of Famers feel like they're on equal footing with one another. Um, you can argue with the logic uh, if you want, but uh, I believe that that is the, the reasoning behind what, you know, uh, 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 behind that particular move. Do you know how many people actually see all of the voting results besides Mr. Brophy? Um, I... I well, I don't know. I don't know that. No, I, I, I you know, I, I would think that uh, up until the announcement, um, pro- you know, 
uh, of course, the uh, the company that handles tallying the votes, and then there's Ed, that there's Jeff, and then uh, and then whoever um, you know, whoever else they feel uh, is necessary to know that information. So, um, you know, I don't really know that, but right. um, but uh, yeah. I mean, because of now with the rule changes, if I'm on the ballot and I'm a guy, especially like a frotch, like you mentioned, or a Martinez, I would like to know yeah. how close 50% I actually got. Yeah, you would you would like to know that. Um, and and, and uh, there certainly is a strong argument toward, uh, you know, uh, what, what, do you, what do you call it? Um, uh uh, well, the word is, is blocking, but uh, openness or, or a word for openness in, in, in that part of the process. Transparency. That's that's the word. Transparency. And uh, of course, you know, to what end would revealing that information be if you're that fighter? You know, it, it just adds a level of angst. You know, to say, oh, geez, you know, I, I just missed it by this much, you know, or or whatever. Uh, on the other hand, you could say, well, maybe next year I'll, I'll have a better chance since a lot of people think that I, I deserve to get in. Um, so, you know, that's that's just another give and take thing that the Hall of Fame uh, has to uh, has to weigh. And they go and they went that way. And, and there are other people who credibly feel the other way. And right. uh, you know it is what it is, as they say. Some some people they might be better off not knowing it and not up thinking about it, but uh, certainly uh, could be. You know that that may be what they were thinking. Well, the, the other part of it uh, is now they have uh, female boxers being inducted. This is the yeah. first female uh, class, and as far as I know. There was uh, one old-timer and a limit of two modern fighters. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they, there's yes. no 80% rule for the female votes, correct? Uh, I don't think that there is. I don't think that there is for the – well, I think there might be for the – I know it's in effect for the male modern. I'm not sure. I think it might also be in effect for the female moderns, uh, but I'm not entirely sure about that. But uh, as far as the the, uh, the female category one, that is one of the most welcome and uh, and uh, you know developments uh, to, to have a female wing, especially since uh, the uh, the women's boxing is experiencing. Uh, you know, a global renaissance. We have a lot of really good fighters out there. Uh, we have, you know, uh, it would also give a chance to honor those of the previous, like in the 1990s and uh, 2000s, and of course the trailblazer category uh, from the um, from the 1920s to the 1970s and 80s. Uh, it, it's a most welcome thing, um, and um, you know. It, uh, you're right about the uh, the um, composition of it. Uh, there was one trailblazer, um, Barbara Buttrick, and mm -hmm. uh, two moderns, uh, Christy Martin and Lucia Riker, which should make for an interesting 
uh, dynamic, considering that the uh, the two of them had a pretty heated rivalry. And the, right. one of the last times that they were seen together, they almost got into a brawl. So, you know, we'll <laughs> see what happens there. Yeah, yeah. Now, is it was for the modern females? Was it the same five check marks? Uh, I think there are three. We can only vote for three. Oh, all right. That makes yeah. it a little bit challenging. Uh, there are yeah, only I mean, like 12, uh, 12 female boxers on the ballot, and so they said, okay, uh, it's a maximum of three. Gotcha, gotcha. So let, let's talk a little bit about the uh, the class. You really have to do much digging to, to put a check mark next to their names, did you? Oh, no, absolutely not. Uh this is an exceptionally strong uh, three-man class uh, that uh, that that the voters uh, put in. Uh, you can make a pretty good argument that this is one of the strongest three-man modern classes that uh, that the Hall of Fame has had since, of course, they went to the three, uh, the maximum three rule uh, a few years back. I mean, you could you could go back to 2007 when the uh, Roberto Duran, Ricardo Lopez, and Pernell Whitaker made up the class, or in uh, 2011 when it was Julio Cesar Chavez, Kostya Zhu, and Mike Tyson. Uh, another very strong three-man class was in 2014 when it was uh, Joe Calzaghe, Oscar De La Hoya, and Felix Trinidad. And, uh, you know, in, um, in, in 2017, we had a class that was Marco Antonio Barrera, Evander Holyfield, and Johnny Tapia. So, uh, you know, Hopkins, Mosley, and Marquez uh, stacks up very, very nicely uh, when it uh, when you compare. Uh, not a lot of thinking involved, and of course, you know, with the, with the reforms, and, and we mentioned earlier the uh, the number of great fighters that are going to be eligible next in the class of 2021. So uh, yeah, that, uh, it's a it's a really uh, a really strong strong class. Yeah, and, uh, and not, did, uh, as far as oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I was going to ask another question. Oh well. Uh, oh sure, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to uh, move forward with the non-participants and the observers, uh, but if you had something more to say about the moderns. Uh, well, you know, uh, I mean, the, the the credentials of the modern guys is 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 beyond uh, beyond dispute. Uh, Bernard Hopkins had a record that was, uh, you know, just just uh, it, it is the record of an all time great. He had an all time record twenty middleweight title defenses. His reign at one sixty was uh, was more than ten years, which is. I think one of only four boxers in history who had a continuous title reign of more than 10 years. Uh, then he, um, you know, he had three particular wins that were um, were seen as massive upsets. You know, Antonio Tarver, Kelly Pavlik, uh, you know, uh, and um, uh, you know the, the fact that he became the oldest man, huh? I said John Pascal too was a, was a somewhat of an upset. Uh, who who was that? John Pascal. Oh well, yeah, that the um, the, uh, the the second time around, uh, it right. was uh, it was a tremendous victory, and of course the Pascal victory allowed him to break George Foreman's 
record for the oldest boxer ever to win a uh, a widely recognized world title, a title, a record that he himself would break two more times. Uh, The last time was at 49 years, 106 days. And, uh, you know, and and then, of course, uh, Juan Manuel Marquez, he had the uh, the rivalry with Manny Pacquiao. He won uh, championships in four weight classes, one of very few Mexicans to ever do that, one of very few fighters to do that. Uh, very skilled, very technically sound. Uh, one of the prized pupils of uh, Nacho Beristain, who he now joins in, in, uh, with into the Hall of Fame. And then Sugar Shane Mosley put together a, a magnificent lightweight title reign, eight title defenses all by knockout, going up, skipping 140 to go to 147 and beating a prime Oscar De La Hoya to win the welterweight title, and then beating... Uh, De La Hoya again to win uh, two belts at 154. Uh, he was uh, just a fusion of speed and power and, uh, and, and you know, just marvelously skilled uh, fighter who, um, who was effective uh, into his late 30s uh, going to the Antonio Margarito fight. By beating Margarito, Mosley became the oldest man ever to win a share of the 147-pound title. And that record has since been beaten twice over. But uh, mostly, you know, all three of these guys are, are, are extremely qualified and accomplished. And, uh, you know, the fact that they're all going in together should make for a very compelling, um, just a part of a very compelling weekend coming in June. Indeed. Now, uh, yeah, I mean, the only real mystery for this year was would a fourth guy get in with an 80 percent? And that did not happen. Uh, there was yeah. also there was also great competition in the non-participants and observers, and those who made it were Ludabella, Kathy Duver, Dan Goosen, and the, the journalist Bernard Fernandez, and of course uh, Thomas uh, Hauser. But there were a lot of worthy names from top to bottom on on in both categories: Brad Goodman. Bob Canobio, who you you are very uh, close with, a lot of uh, officials mm-hmm. were on the ballot, but uh, yeah. it was a very solid five here. I mean, uh, I find these categories a little bit more tra- problematic for voters in terms of how do you distinguish? It, I think it's a while. It takes a lot of time. And you do have to do a lot of thinking. I think it's a little bit easier to distinguish the boxers. How do you go about, if indeed Absolutely. you vote in these categories, how do you go about it? Well, you know, um, the, the fact that, you know, because of the 10-year rule, uh, that you know, there were a ton of new names that were put on the ballot. There were 24 that alone in the non-participants and 19 in the observers. So you had a lot of fresh, uh, of fresh new names from which to choose. For me, uh, I didn't want to overload in one particular category. Uh, although the voters did vote in two writers in the observers and three promoters uh, in the, uh, in the uh, non-participants, you know, I, I, I voted for a trainer. Uh, Kenny Adams. I, I voted for uh, Freddie Brown, who was, um, you know, a trainer and a cut man. 
yeah. Dr. Margaret Goodman, who is a physician and the creator, of, you know, the driving force behind VADA, uh, Chuck Hall, ring announcer, and Dave Moretti, one of the great judges. Uh, but, um, you know, this was a category that uh, that really had no wrong answers. I mean, the the, the, the fact that, uh, that uh, Lou DiBella and, and, and Dan Goosen and uh, – and uh, what was the other name? Kathy um, Duva. Kathy Duva, yeah. All of them, you know, uh, all of them are extremely worthy and very accomplished. And I think the the fact, particularly that um, that uh, that the promoters got in, it kind of dovetails into the theme of now we have a women's wing in the uh, in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. And, uh, you know, we had promoters now being put in who were champions of, uh, of female boxing. And, of course, Kathy Duva, uh, you know, is one of the very few women uh, to get into the Hall of Fame. So all are extremely uh, deserving and, uh, and, and are worthy of congratulations. Uh, there re- like I said, there really isn't a wrong answer here. Yeah, I mean, it certainly uh, was uh, a big, big I mean, uh, both, uh, you know, categories had uh, a lot of worthy, worthy uh, people. But, uh, I mean... You had uh, 20 check marks, man. Indeed, indeed. Now, uh, one of the things that was interesting about this uh, that I think uh, is being lost, and, and then these people are not really even in, in the, any of the promo pictures, uh, is the uh, the the old timer categories right? They lightweight champion mm-hmm. like Ernie in the old timer category and Patty Ryan, Patty Ryan in the pioneer uh, category. They're not even uh, featured on any of the pr- promotions. I I doubt they'll get featured on the uh, Hall of Fame program this year too. Uh, uh, not n- nobody's talking about these uh, gentlemen getting in. Uh, well, you know, um, they're they're old timers. I'm, I don't know how many pictures of them are really available, considering that uh, Patty Patty Ryan fought in the uh, in the uh, late 19th century, and uh, you know, but Ernie uh, Ernie's a, a two division champion. Um, you know, he fought in the in the early days as well, um, but uh, they 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 shouldn't be shortchanged either. Uh, you know, Frank Ernie was one of the uh, one of the guys that I voted for in the. Uh, now this was the uh, the early era old timer. Right. Um, right. The old timer ballot uh, is uh, rotates between early era old timers, which uh, has boxers who uh, whose last bouts were between 1893 and 1942, uh, and then there's the uh, the late era old timers who. Uh, Careers ended between 1943 and uh, and onward. So, um, you know, next year will be the uh, the late era, which is 43 to to, to you know going forward. And right. uh, you know, one of the guys that I would definitely vote for is Marvin Johnson. Hopefully, he gets on the ballot. Yeah, there's been a lot of push for him. Uh, guys like Rodrigo Valdez. Some people believe it's a shame he's not yeah. in. Uh, he was on the ballot last time right. and did not get in. Uh, so yeah, a lot, a lot right. of uh, that when when there are more 
you know, closer to our living time, so to speak, that they get more attention uh, the Hall of Fame weekend. I mean, like last yeah. year, Tony DeMarco was alive and attending, so that that, that was great uh, yeah. to see. So, yeah, that, I mean, that was really good, you know. Um, oh, yeah, that, that was really good. That was really good that Tony DeMarco got in. I didn't vote for him, but uh, there was a lot of sentiment uh, toward him, and, uh, you know, Springs Toledo deserves a lot of great credit for uh, for kind of spearheading the campaign for, for Tony DeMarco. And, uh, you know, he got in. He got to enjoy his uh, his day in the sun. It was wonderful to see and uh you know you're happy to 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 see uh guys like him uh get that uh get that day in the sun and and to make a speech and to uh to be honored the way that he was yeah you, you bring up an interesting point and i'm not so sure that uh, guys should be championing for other guys right the, shouldn't every voter do their due diligence and research without the influence of others I mean, I had Rick Glazer on here last year bragging about how he, he's the one that got Donald Curry in. I was like, well, shouldn't the voters have determined that Donald Curry was worthy without hearing you have to say it? I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Well, you know what? Uh, you know, as for me, I have my criteria as to what makes a Hall of Famer. And, uh, you know, I can be persuaded to take another look, but after taking another look, I usually come to the same conclusion that uh, that uh, they don't meet my standard for, for being a Hall of Famer. And if they get in anyway, then you have to just chalk it up to uh, to being outvoted by the majority. You know, it doesn't really do any good to, to cry over spilt milk and, and, and stomp your feet. Uh, all you can do is really just be happy for the people who do get in because for them it's a very special day, and uh, the last thing that they need is to have some uh, some writer, uh, you know, rain on their parade. So, you know, I used to uh, I used to uh, complain about uh, the the makeup of of uh, past classes, but uh, you know what? Uh, it, it doesn't really do any good. So I just say, okay, that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's the way the class comes out, and we'll just celebrate. So, you know, so be it. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of feel the same way too, but I, I just don't know if other people out there should be trying to influence other writers of other voters. Uh, that That's what bothers me more. I mean, who it's gets part in, of the process. It, yeah. Is it like that for others? It's sports? part of the process. It happens everywhere. Yeah, man. Well, I, I guess it's one of those facts of life things that I'll have to accept. Huh? <laughs> but yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, yeah. I mean, I, it, it, it's a. It's. It. Go ahead. I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I, I never say like I, I hear a lot of oh he doesn't deserve it. I was like no, I, I never go that way. I, I just don't know if guys should be saying you should vote for this guy or this guy should everybody should have earned their vote because they they are extremely extremely diligent in their boxing research and knowledge they shouldn't have to hear somebody else campaign for somebody else but i guess it's i guess it's their right to do so you know feel free to campaign feel free to make a case 
uh, all week. You know, for me as a voter, uh, I will uh, I will listen, I will consider. Uh, that and and beyond that, that's all. I, that's all you can really do as a voter is to just uh, okay. I'll give you due consideration. I'll I'll, uh, I'll look it over. I'll see if uh, the their candidacies is worth top five because basically that's what you're doing now with these strong classes. Right. Uh, it's really up to the individual voter to uh, to consider what he feels is a top five, and uh, if they make the top five, fine. If they don't. Then uh, you know that's that's the way that it is. That's that's one of the things responsibilities that you have to take as a voter. Do your due diligence. Know your subject. Uh, weigh the options as as well as well as you can, and then uh, then make your decision. And um, however however the vote comes out, there are more than 200 members of the BWAA that uh, that vote. Uh, for the Hall of Fame, and just for the modern, uh, the modern class, uh, the other ballots are um, distributed among, you know, chosen historians and, uh, you know, det- as determined by the Hall of Fame. It's a much smaller pool that uh, that determines, say, the female ballots and the old timers and the uh, and the and the non-participants and observers. Uh, that's a much smaller class, and uh, you know that. You know, there there hasn't been nearly as much uh, controversy over those ballots as there have been over the moderns. So, right, you know, right. you can take that for what you will. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, moving forward, uh, I don't think there's going to be much uh, controversy with, with the moderns. There's a lot of a lot of shoo-ins, as we say, in the next couple of years. Yeah. So, I'm. It should be a great Absolutely. weekend. Uh, I can't wait. Uh, I, if all goes well, I will be there. I know you will be there as well. So uh, definitely looking forward willing, to yeah. And one of the things I love is uh, when I get the emails of the returning uh, fighters, who's coming back. I mean, uh, that's that usually mm-hmm. starts up January and uh, and it goes right up until uh, Hall of Fame Day. So that, that that's always a fun part for me as well. Absolutely. Have have you got your uh, your hotels and uh, everything cinched up? Because, you know, with this class coming in, it would be a really good time to uh, to nail down your hotels uh, and your uh, and your lodging and everything. Oh yeah, yeah. We booked a we booked a while back, and I also have yeah. booked booked a, a, a table as I anticipate my book on Greg Haugen to be done. So I booked a table at the card show for that as well. So I'm ready to go. Awesome! I, I'm going to stop by. Thank you, thank you. So now we got. Unfortunately, one of the other things we always seem to get together on is when great fighters pass away, and I wasn't planning on doing that uh, yeah. with this segment. But uh, lo and behold, a day or two ago, the great Sal Mambi passed away from the Bronx. Mambi was yeah. one of those guys who's just. Uh, not as far as I know, not a boxing Hall of Famer, but certainly is definitely has a Hall of Fame story for sure. Uh, and Thomas Hauser, one of the inductees this year, he's featured very prominently in I think Hauser's best book, The Black Lights, which uh, focused around Billy Costello. Mm-hmm. So I mean, great stuff there. I know you were very fond of uh, Mr. Mombi. You wrote a, a a piece on the Ring TV about him. So. Uh, 
get, pay him some tribute for a minute or two. Wow, uh, you know when I was uh, when I was learning about the history of the sport, um, one of the uh, the first time that I became aware of uh, of Saul Mambi was uh, in one of my magazines, and uh, you know I was reading the uh, the brief about his fight with Sansak Maksaran in in Thailand. And the write-up uh, sort of, you know, portrayed that Mambi should have won. And, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, you know, for that reason, you know, I, I, I sort of have a, a justice streak in me. I want to see things turn out the way that they should. And so having read that Mambi was, uh, was robbed of the championship, uh, I, I wanted for him to win it. And so I began following his career, and uh, the word pictures that I that I read about his style, his conditioning, his uh, his technique, his knowledge of the sport, kind of drew me in. And uh, when I read in uh, the Ring magazine that uh, you know he got a second championship shot against uh, uh, you know Sang Hoon Kim, who uh, who beat Moxern, and uh, in South Korea. And he won it by a one-punch knockout in round 14 uh, in Korea against a Korean champion. I was just so happy for him. And you would think that a guy who had a, uh, a fairly spotty record, you know, I think he had 12 losses at the time that he uh, won the championship and five draws, uh, you would think that, a, that uh, such a guy would be a fairly short-term transitional champion. Well, he was anything but. Um, he uh, ended up uh, reigning for over two and a half years. He had five successful title defenses. He uh, he uh, fought all of his fights away from uh, from his native New York. Uh, he defended on Larry Holmes' undercards. He traveled to Nigeria and uh, and and other places around the world. You know, he was a world champion and he was a high end technician, uh, world class for sure. But the majority of his career was spent as a guy who was uh, who was just struggling to make ends meet, getting decisions or you know having draws and losses uh, go against him in fights that he felt he should have won and probably should have won. Um, then there was the uh, the long, you know, the long drawn out process after he lost the championship. Uh, you know, of course, you talk about the Billy Costello loss. You talk about the you know, he fought on until 2000, and then he came back eight years later at nearly 61, and he uh, and he fought once more. I mean, this guy is is the uh, is the ultimate uh, boxing globetrotter. He fought everywhere: big cities, small cities, big countries, small countries, and uh, every time, you know, he came into the ring in shape, always ready to go always ready to use all of his brain power to uh, to, uh, to in search of victory and um, he, he really was a physical marvel even deep into his 40s and into his 50s he was uh, he was uh, an, an exceptional uh, physical specimen uh, I remember in researching the story that I wrote for ring TV I came across a, a Baltimore Sun uh, profile on him and uh, I think this was in 1990 uh, when Mambi was 43. 
and uh, Randy Gordon, who was the uh, New York State Athletic Commissioner at the time, said that Mombi has the body of a man 20 years younger, his, uh, you know, his brain waves and his uh, heart, you know, every reading that you could take uh, was of a guy who was supremely conditioned and fit to fight. And because of the vast knowledge that he collected uh, in, his, uh, in his travels, uh, as far as technique is concerned, he was able to go the distance uh, with, a, with a lot of younger fighters. Uh, he had a granite chin. He had a, uh, a great defensive technique, very good jab, pinpoint right crosses. He was really something. And, and, and you know, he was a favorite of mine. He wasn't the greatest world champion, but he was a favorite of mine. And um, I remember when, uh, when I heard that he was going to be on the undercard of Larry Holmes and Leon Spinks. It was his national TV debut. And I remember reading in the TV guide that uh, – that he was going to be on there as well. And I was more excited by seeing Saul Mambi on TV fighting a Esteban de Jesus than I was in the main event between Larry Holmes and Leon Spinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's how much regard I had for Saul Mambi. Um, I met him once in 1997. It was International Boxing Hall of Fame weekend. Um, we were staying at the same hotel as Don King was, uh, the Marriott in the, uh, in the Syracuse uh, you know, in Syracuse. And uh, we were just sitting around the lobby waiting, you know, just just hanging out, and all of a sudden I see this procession of world champions come into the lobby. Uh, Larry Holmes and Edwin Rosario and, uh, you know, various other ones, and, and Saul Mamby was one of them. And I was just absolutely thrilled to, um, to, uh, to, to talk to Mamby for, for a few minutes and have him sign my big book, uh, and uh, you know he he looked he looked fantastic. He uh, spoke clear as a bell. Uh, he was appreciative of the attention that he was receiving. And um, you know he was there with Don King's entourage, who was being inducted that year. And um, it was just a wonderful thing. And uh, it, it's unfortunate that I didn't get to uh, see him again. But I certainly followed his career, admired his career, uh, and. Um, you know, when I heard of his passing, I was surprised and saddened. And um, you know, then I was soon asked to write the uh, the piece on him, and I just let it flow. You know, uh, he will be missed, and uh, you know, God willing, I'll get to see him again someday. Yeah, definitely will be missed. Uh, definitely a, a great uh, uh, fighter, and uh, sad to see him go. But th- thank you for that. And if you have not read yeah. the Tribune. TV.com. It is a great one. Uh, Lee, last piece of business. We'll bring up the the book again. Muhammad mm-hmm. Ali by numbers with uh, Bob Canobio in yourself. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. It's. Re- I was thinking about it as I knew I was going to talk to you, and it, it's really a unique uh, approach, a unique book. Because I mean, has there been anybody written more about than Muhammad Ali? There are so many books. On Muhammad Ali, he was covered in the magazines so many times. He was on Sports Illustrated uh, a gazillion times. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's like, how many times does anybody want to read a book about Muhammad Ali? But this one, if you haven't yet, it's unique and it's fresh and it's a different approach. 
And uh, last time we spoke, you were thinking about doing uh, other things and uh, anything new on the horizon. If not, then you just plug this one. Well, uh, nothing on the horizon. I do have ideas, but it's just a matter of time to uh, to sit down and devote to uh, to make the best book that I could possibly get. Uh, I do a lot of research for uh, for CompuBox and the various networks that we do, and that takes up a great deal of time, uh, you know, to do it right. But as far as Muhammad Ali by the numbers, you're right about that. It is it is a completely different uh, perspective into Muhammad Ali's life, and that's because uh, while his um, his in ring exploits and his out of the ring uh, adventures uh, are well chronicled. The one part of his life that hadn't been was exactly the number of punches he uh, threw and landed on his opponents, and more importantly, the number of punches thrown and landed by those opponents uh, throughout his, uh, his, his career. Uh, we were able to get footage of, uh, of uh, you know, 47 of his 61 fights, including 43 of his final 44, so it's, you know, his career is very well represented. And, uh, you know, not only did we do the punch stats, I, uh, you know, I researched his career, got through back issues of magazines and books and, and everything to get the all, you know, virtually all sides of, uh, of the fights that he took part in. And we also, thanks to uh, Bob Canobio's friend Bob Yalen, we were able to get the official scorecards of many of, uh, of Ali's fights, including uh, those late in his career in which, uh, you know, some people thought he should have lost against Jimmy Young and Ernie Shavers and Ken Norton. Um, you can match up the punch numbers with the judges' scorecards and uh, the, the comparison and the contrast, especially right. in those fights, uh, mm-hmm. are, are very, very interesting and intriguing. Definitely, definitely. And uh, for those who have not... Uh gotten a copy and would like to get a copy tell them how to do so well uh it's available on amazon uh you just look up uh, muhammad ali by the numbers and it'll pop up um you know i i have a couple of uh, a couple of copies myself um you know you, you can get it on amazon you could uh, also uh, email me uh at l dot groves at frontier.com uh see about getting a copy there it's very limited though but uh anyway uh it, it, i can tell you it, uh, i may be biased and i am biased but it's uh it's a very worthwhile uh read it's an educational read uh i know that in researching this uh this book there were a lot of things about muhammad ali that i you know that i didn't know and right. uh, only by going back to the source material do you find out these things. So, you know, for the first time in, in many years, a lot of these things are brought out. And, uh, you know, each fight is described in detail. I try to take you back to the, uh, to the fight itself, what was being said, how the fight was being thought of at the time, um, you know, the pre-fight, the post-fight, uh, everything. It's almost like you're transported back in time and you're reliving the fights again. And uh, right. more than one person who has uh, who has gotten in contact with me has said that. So, you know, uh, get it. <laughs> it would make a great yeah. a great Christmas gift uh, for for anybody. A great gift for anybody at any time. 
Yes, indeed, indeed. Thank you so much, uh, Lee Groves. Anything else with that you would like to say in closing? Always a pleasure and uh, looking forward to talking to you throughout the course of the year. Uh, absolutely. Thank you once again for having me on. Uh, thanks for the platform. Uh, you know, I'm always up for uh, for talking about boxing and boxing history, and uh, I really appreciate you having me on. I wish you and yours a great holiday season. Uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, whatever uh, whatever holidays you celebrate at, during this time of year. I hope that uh, the the the, ne- the next year, 2020, upward and onward, and hopefully it'll be the best year yet. Yes, thank you, and the same to you, my friend. Can't wait to keep reading what you do. You're you're a great gift to boxing, and uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Thank you so much. All the best. Yes, this is um, Kenneth Ray Allen, cruiserweight, uh, undefeated boxer, and you are listening to Zoops Boxing Talk. All righty, that was Lee Groves, and if you – feel a little short change, feel like maybe you didn't get it right with your Christmas present, you can always get a copy of Muhammad Ali by the numbers on Amazon or contact Lee. I, I promise you it would be worth every penny. Good stuff there. And uh, Lee Groves, really, I mean, what else can be said about the uh, uh, Sal Mambi, leave it to Lee to do it uh, so poignantly in such vivid description and detail and uh, sad that he passed away. As of now, the cause of death, as far as I know, is still not revealed, so we'll see about that. So uh, it's worth mentioning that uh, there have been pictures of Chavez Jr. in the hospital bed with his dad being uh, taken care of for a broken nose. I always try and (coughs) scale back when trying to criticize a fighter who cannot continue because of an injury that he claims he has. I'm going to leave it at that. I understand why people might be upset, but everybody was going in there looking to latch on is something uh, to kill Chavez Jr. with, and they indeed got it. And a lot of it is done, you know, with by his own doing. I get that. The guy didn't come in on weight, which would have been a miracle if he made 168 anyway. The guy is, uh, hasn't gotten out of his own way for, uh, for a lot of his career, and obviously the belief there is that he's only gotten where he is at because of his father, I understand all that, but uh, I'm not so sure it's okay to, to, to kill him on, on not being able to continue with the broken nose. I, at least I'm not going to do it, uh, let's put it that way. Because you got to be very careful when you, you, you play that game. I mean, in, in baseball, that was done to J.R. Richard way back when, when he could not uh, pitch in 1980 when he was complaining about injuries. People were calling him a dog. Of course, the old men were all out there. And this is in 1980. Old man card still existed then. Oh, this guy's a dog. In my day, these guys just pitch, right? You see the same nonsense now. But uh, long story short, J.R. Richard wound up having a really serious 
condition, a blood clot or, or something like that, and he was never able to pitch again. Uh, and then the dog killer, Gerald McClellan, I never like to talk positive about the dog killer in any way. But uh, I remember when he went down and could not continue against Nigel Ben, how the announcers were killing him. I mean, the guy shouldn't have been allowed to fight, but that's a whole other thing. But they, they were killing him, saying he was a dog, and then obviously everybody found out what happened to him. Now, in no way, shape, or form, though, I think Junior is in that kind of dire straits <laughs> with, with his condition. But I thought the guy fought felt well enough up until then. He was not getting any help with uh, the, the referee, with Jacobs' dirty tactics. So I, I choose to leave it at that. Let, let's put it that way. And um, one other piece of news I want to get to before we leave for this 2019 year. Uh, Top Rank Boxing uh, released a, a pretty cool uh, press release a couple of days ago. And yes, the juggernaut company adds another promising pugilist to their roster. And I'm going to read it straight from the, the press release that I received. Abraham L. Supernova, the undefeated Puerto Rican born, 130 pound with the signature bleach beard, has signed a healthy promotional agreement with Top Nova's first deal, which will see Top Rank serve as co promoter of Murphy's Boxing and 12 round promotions, will be on Saturday, January 18th, live on ESPN. Now, this is a quote from Nova. I'm excited that the world will see my talent on major platforms like ESPN and ESPN+. It is time for everyone to see what I am about. I want to fight for a world title soon, and I believe 2020 is the year I receive that opportunity. Top rank has a lot of big names at 130, and I don't duck or dodge anybody. And this is a quote directly from Mr. Aram. Abraham is an extraordinarily gifted young fighter who fits right into the mix at 130 pounds. He has talent, charisma, and an engaging personality. 2020 is going to be a big year for the young man. And this is Ken Casey, president and founder of Murphy's Boxing. Abraham Nova is a very talented fighter with big knockout power. We've just begun to see how good he can be. With top rank, we found a great co-promoter to take Abraham to a world championship. The 25-year-old Nova, who is 17-0 with 13 knockouts, was born in Carolina, Carolina, Puerto Rico, and moved to Albany, New York with his family as an infant. One of 10 children born to an evangelical minister father, Nova started from humble beginnings with his family of 12, squeezed into a two-bedroom apartment. He began boxing at the age of 12 and had nearly 200 amateur fights. Nova turned pro in April 2016 and has a well-traveled pro career, including five bouts in Belgium, where he has become a local favorite. He is ranked in the top 10 by two of the major sanctioning organizations and won all three of his 2019 bouts by KO, including a first-round stoppage over Luis Ronaldo Castillo in defense of his super NABF super featherweight belt. He, he was one of 
Teofimo Lopez's primary sparring partners as Lopez prepared for his December 14th winning title showdown against Richard Colmey. So as you can see, even my dog is excited about this signing. And that's about all I have for you, folks. Well, there's nothing else I could really do right now. Thank you so much to Kenneth Ray Allen. Thank you so much to Lee Groves. Enjoy the big fights this weekend. We'll, we'll be back next year with some big guests on as well. And until then, ring the bell and keep on punching.